Sections 25 and 26 of 100% The Story of a Patriot by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 25 Peter hurried back to the Todd home, and there was white-faced little Jenny lying on the bed, still sobbing. One would think she might have used up her surplus stock of emotions, but no, there is never any limit to the emotions a woman can pour out. As soon as Peter had got fairly started on the humiliating confession that he had a wife, little Jenny sprang up from the bed with a terrified shriek and confronted him with a face like the ghost of an escaped lunatic. Peter tried to explain that it wasn't his fault. He had really expected to be free any day. But Jenny only clasped her hands to her forehead and screamed, "'You have deceived me! You have betrayed me!' It was just like a scene in the movies. The bored little devil inside Peter was whispering. He tried to take her hand and reason with her, but she sprang away from him. She rushed to the other side of the room and stood there, staring at him as if she were some wild thing that he had in a corner and was threatening to kill. She made so much noise that he was afraid that she would bring the neighbors in. He had to point out to her that if this matter became public, he would be ruined forever as a witness, and thus she might be the means of sending Jim Goober to the gallows. Thereupon Jenny fell silent, and it was possible for Peter to get in a word. He told her of the intrigues against him. The other side had sent somebody to him, and offered him ten thousand dollars if he would sell out the Goober defense. Now, since he had refused, they were trying to blackmail him, using his wife. They had somehow come to suspect that he was involved in a love affair, and this was to be the means of ruining him. Jenny still would not let Peter touch her, but she consented to sit down quietly in a chair and figure out what they were going to do. Whatever happened, she said, they must do no harm to the Goober case. Peter had done her a monstrous wrong in keeping the truth from her, but she would suffer the penalty, whatever it might be. She would never involve him. Peter started to explain. Perhaps it wasn't so serious as she feared. He had been thinking things over. He knew where Pericles Priam, his old employer, was living, and Pericles was rich now, and Peter felt sure that he could borrow two hundred dollars, and there were places where little Jenny could go. There were ways to get out of this trouble. But little Jenny stopped him. She was only a child in some ways, but in others she was a mature woman. She had strange fixed ideas, and when you ran into them it was like running into a stone wall. She would not hear of the idea Peter suggested. It would be murder. Nonsense, said Peter, echoing McGivney. It's nothing. Everybody does it. But Jenny was apparently not listening. She sat staring with her wild, terrified eyes and pulling at her dress with her fingers. Peter got to watching these fingers, and they got on his nerves. They behaved like insane fingers. They manifested all the emotions which the rest of little Jenny was choking back and repressing. If you would only not take it so seriously, Peter pleaded. It's a miserable accident, but it's happened, and now we've got to make the best of it. Some day I'll get free. Some day I'll marry you. Stop, Peter the girl whispered, in her tense voice. I don't want to talk to you any more, if that's all you have to say. I don't know that I'd be willing to marry you, now that I know you could deceive me, that you could go on deceiving me day after day for months. Peter thought she was going to break out into hysterics again, and he was frightened. He tried to plead with her, but suddenly she sprang up. Go away! she exclaimed. Please go away and let me alone. 
I'll think it over and decide what to do myself. Whatever I do, I won't disgrace you, so leave me alone. Go quickly! Section 26 She drove him out of the house, and Peter went, though with many misgivings. He wandered about the streets, not knowing what to do with himself, looking back over the blunders he had made, and tormenting himself with that most tormenting of all thoughts. How different my life might have been, if only I had had sense enough to do this, or not to do that. Dinner time came, and Peter blew himself to a square meal, but even that did not comfort him entirely. He pictured Sadie coming home at this hour. Was Jenny telling her or not? There was a big mass meeting called by the Goober Defense Committee that evening, and Peter attended. And it proved to be the worst thing he could have done. His mind was in no condition to encounter the fierce passions of this crowded assemblage. Peter had the picture of himself being exposed and denounced. He wasn't sure yet that it mightn't happen to him. And here was this meeting. Thousands of working men, horny-handed blacksmiths, longshoremen with shoulders like barns and truckmen with fists like battering rams, long-haired radicals of a hundred dangerous varieties, women who waved red handkerchiefs and shrieked until, to Peter, they seemed like gorgons with snakes instead of hair. Such were the mob frenzies engendered by the Goober case, and Peter knew, of course, that to all these people he was a traitor, a poisonous worm, a snake in the grass. If ever they were to find out what he was doing, if, for instance, someone were to rise up and expose him to this crowd, they would seize him and tear him to pieces. And maybe, right now, little Jenny was telling Sadie, and Sadie would tell Andrews, and Andrews would become suspicious, and set spies on Peter Gudge. Maybe they had spies on him already, and knew of his meetings with McGivney. Haunted by such terrors, Peter had to listen to the tirades of Donald Gordon, of John Durand, and of Sorensen, the longshoreman's leader. He had to listen to exposure after exposure of the tricks which Guffey had played. He had to hear the district attorney of the county denounced as a suborner of perjury, and his agents as blackmailers and forgers. Peter couldn't understand why such things should be permitted, why these speakers were not all clapped into jail. But instead, he had to sit there and listen. He even had to applaud and pretend to approve. All the other secret operatives of the Traction Trust and of the District Attorney's Office had to listen and pretend to approve. In the hall, Peter had met Miriam Yankovich, and was sitting next to her. Look, she said, there's a couple of dicks over there. Look at the mugs on them. Which, said Peter. And she answered, that fellow who looks like a bruiser, and that one next to him with the face of a rat. Peter looked, and saw that it was McGivney, and McGivney looked at Peter, but gave no sign. The meeting lasted until nearly midnight. It subscribed several thousand dollars to the Goober Defense Fund, and adopted ferocious resolutions which it ordered printed and sent to every local of every labor union in the country. Peter got out before it was over, because he could no longer stand the strain of his own fears and anxieties. He pushed his way through the crowd, and in the lobby he ran into Pat McCormick, the IWW leader. There was more excitement in this boy's grim face than Peter had ever seen there before. Peter thought it was the meeting, but the other rushed up to him, exclaiming, "'Have you heard the news?' "'What news?' "'Little Jenny Todd has killed herself.' "'My God!' gasped Peter, starting back. "'Adder Ruth just told me. Sadie found a note when she got home.' Jenny had left. She was going to drown herself. 
But what, why? cried Peter in horror. She was suffering so, her health was so wretched. She begged Sadie not to look for her body, not to make a fuss. They'll never find her. And horrified and stunned as Peter was, there was something inside him that drew a deep breath of relief. Little Jenny had kept her promise. Peter was safe. End of sections 25 and 26